From Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma, I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line. In October, the Society for Immunotherapy of Cancer released a checklist for running certain cancer studies. The checklist is aimed at maximizing the value of these trials. Today, you'll hear Fierce Pharma staff writer Angus Liu as he questions Dr. Michael Atkins, the first author of the checklist. But first, the news. It's Friday, February 24th, and we've got the hottest biopharma and medtech industry news this week. Here's Zoe Becker. After so much success with Moderna's COVID-19 shot, the pharma industry has high expectations. But Moderna's flu shot didn't exactly meet the bar. Last week, Moderna released a report with study results for its mRNA flu shot. As Annalie Armstrong reports, the results showed that Moderna's shot was better than approved shots at creating antibodies to fight two A strains of the influenza virus. But the vaccine did not match the approved shots on the B strains. Moderna's shot also had a higher rate of adverse events like headache, pain, and swelling, which is critical when you think about a shot that public health officials urge people to take every year. Moderna President Stephen Hogue acknowledged in a release that the results weren't what they were hoping for. He said they already updated the vaccine that he says they believe could improve immune responses against influenza B. It is a tight race to be the first to bring an mRNA flu shot to market. Pfizer and BioNTech, GSK and CureVac, and Sanofi are all working on shots. All these vaccines will need to take down the four common strains to win the market. BD has found a potential hacking risk in some of its medical equipment. A week ago, BD posted a cybersecurity alert regarding certain versions of the Alaris Infusion Central software. This is a software that operates BD's infusion pumps. As Andrea Park reports, BD's alert warns that the password used for database installation could be recovered fairly easily by someone with physical access to a hospital's network. The database doesn't take in patient health data. However, some hospitals may choose to store other personal information in the database, such as hospital admission information. It is that data that is vulnerable to the hackers. Cybersecurity risks are often assessed with the Common Vulnerability Scoring System. It is a scale of 1 to 10. 10 being the most risky. BD said this risk is a 7, making it a high risk to data security. It didn't reach the threshold for a critical risk since the personal information can't be reached remotely. Don't sweat it yet. Hospitals will get a call from BD if their data is at risk. BD is contacting all affected healthcare providers to fix the issue. It has also revised the software's installation instructions to keep it from cropping up again in the future. Apellus Pharmaceuticals has the GA market all to itself, for now at least. As Fraser Kansteiner reports, the FDA cleared Apellus's drug, called Cyfovri, as the first treatment specifically approved to treat GA, or geographic atrophy. GA is an advanced stage of age-related macular degeneration. It is a leading cause of blindness. Last year, Apellus recruited around 100 field-based sales reps to support its launches. It is gearing up for the Cyfovri launch in early March. The drug will be sold through specialty distributors and pharmacies around the U.S. Cyfovri was previously approved for a rare blood disorder in 2022 under the name Empavelli. Empavelli made $65 million in sales in its first year. Evaluate Pharma predicts that in GA, Cyfovri could reach sales of more than $2.5 billion by 2028. 
there is a new sign of hope for patients with a rare kidney disease. The FDA just approved Filspari to treat patients with a kidney disease called primary immunoglobin A nephropathy. The disease is caused by a buildup of proteins in the kidneys, which leads to inflammation and kidney damage. The FDA approved the drug for people who are at risk of rapid disease progression. The company that developed Filspari is called Trevere Therapeutics. And as Angus Liu reports, it has an interesting history. It only rebranded to that name in 2020 to rid itself of any connections with its founder, Martin Screlly. By now, many people know him as PharmaBro for his notorious price hikes for life-saving drugs. But now Trevere Therapeutics can focus on the work at hand, Filspari. The drug works by blocking two protein receptors, endothelin and angiotensin. We already have drugs targeting those receptors separately, but Filspari can do the work of two drugs in one. Are there any weird words in here? Right, okay. Empebly. Empebly. Empebly? I don't know if I said that right. Oh my gosh, we're so wrong. It's Empebelly. Empebelly. I just found a video that they made. Empebelly? Empebelly. Okay, got it. Coming up next, we'll hear from Dr. Michael Atkins about that cancer trial checklist. But first, an announcement. We are extending the deadline for nominations for the most influential people in biopharma. But you still don't have long. The deadline is March 3rd. Get those nominations in by midnight. Go to fiercepharma.com. And just to remind you, every year the Fierce team profiles the most influential people in biopharma. And we're asking for your input. Help us identify visionaries at both the scientific and business ends of our industry. Who in biopharma is leading the push for clinical diversity? Or who's rewriting the drug launch playbook? Or who has a promising new cancer treatment approach? Remember, go to fiercepharma.com or look for the link in our show notes. Checkpoint inhibitors help keep immune responses from being too strong. And PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors are being used as a treatment for many cancers by taking the brakes off the immune system. The success of PD-1 and PD-L1 checkpoint inhibitors has spurred wide interest in developing cancer immunotherapies. Initially, researchers tested these meds alone across different tumor types. But drug development efforts have been focusing on combining PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors with other agents. An analysis by the Cancer Research Institute, published in February of 2022, found that 80% of active clinical trials testing anti-PD-1 or PD-L1 antibodies were in combination regimens. Some combinational attempts in this field have been successful, but there were also many high-profile failures. Last October, the Society for Immunotherapy of Cancer released a checklist for running phase three studies for cancer immunotherapy combinations. The checklist covers things like the validity of preclinical models or single agent activity or the randomization in phase two. SITSI is basically telling clinical trial investigators that phase three trials that meet these standards are more likely to succeed and therefore worth enrolling patients. 
Fierce Pharma's Angus Liu sat down with Georgetown's Dr. Michael Atkins. He was a former SITSE president and first author of the Checklist Manuscript. They talked about why the checklist is important in immuno-oncology drug development. Dr. Atkins, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Dr. Atkins, you have been studying uh, immunotherapies for some time now. Uh, I mean, you led that study that suggested uh, immuno-oncology combinations should be used uh, before BRF-targeted combination therapy in melanoma, even though both are approved as frontline treatment. Uh, obviously, we are seeing a lot of enthusiasm in cancer immunotherapy combinations lately. But why do you think it's important to have this checklist uh, for phase three trials now? Uh, what prompted the team and CITC to start devising this list? Sure. So, first of all, thank you. It's great to be here. When we think about the immune system, it's different than other cancer treatments because we're treating the immune system so that it can treat the cancer. And because the activated immune system can target there are many tumor antigens simultaneously and deepen and broaden over time, immunotherapy can cure patients with metastatic cancer. And so the hallmark of an effective immunotherapy is the tail on the curve. And therefore, when we were thinking about looking at combinations, we wanted to make sure the combinations that we were looking at actually improved the immunotherapy components of the combination. Because PD-1 was becoming the backbone for many different combinations, there must be over 2,000 different drugs that are being combined with anti-PD-1, we wanted to make sure that um, the combinations that were being created were the ones that were optimal from an immune therapy standpoint. And so uh, I'd say in the past few years, for the first time, we were seeing immunotherapy combinations that didn't pan out. Given I guess the adage that you learn more from failure than success, we thought that we should see if we could determine whether there were some common features to these phase three trials that failed versus those that succeeded. And um, rather than trying to boil the ocean, um, we wanted to just focus on uh, combinations that involved an anti-PD-1 backbone and take it from the investigator's perspective, helping investigators to decide which phase three trials to open and mm-hmm. which ones they felt comfortable in exposing their patients to. Just to recap for those uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, uh, this checklist includes various criteria for assessing the value of planned phase three trials for immunotherapy combinations. It covers mechanism, biology, early and mid-stage clinical data, all the way to the phase three trial design itself. So Dr. Atkins, I know this list is mainly uh, directed toward, uh, meant for uh, trial investigators, uh, but I've also talked to uh, representatives from several biopharmaceutical companies working in immuno-oncology. The consensus seems to be that the bar of this checklist is simply too high, that it's almost impossible to meet all of them. Of all of these entries uh, you have on the checklist, 
which one do you think might be the most controversial that which one you expect will face the, the kind of the most objection from uh, biopharmaceutical companies? Yeah, so um, you mentioned we had 12 items in four categories, um, mechanisms in biology, phase one and two data, trial design, and potential impact. And, um, and we actually, in our manuscript, put some priorities on those. We didn't expect that every item in these checklists would be accomplished, but we did feel that certain things needed to be met in order to potentially have a successful phase three trial. And those highest priority was given to randomize phase two trials, especially if it was an IO-IO combination and single agent activity producing durable responses, especially in patients who had PD-1 resistant tumors. What I think we've gotten the most objection to is having the combination partner have single agent activity. I could see that people would be concerned and come up with reasons why they thought that um, you could potentially have synergy or additive activity without single agent activity. Mm -hmm. um, but in that case, if you can't show um, single agent activity in a PD-1 resistant tumor, um, you have to do a randomized phase two trial. And if you can't do a randomized phase two trial or show single agent activity, then you've got to accomplish a lot of these other areas in the uh, in the checklist in order for me as an investigator to feel comfortable that this isn't going to be a waste of resources to put mm -hmm. patients on that trial. Right. Sort of just to recap what you just said, uh, Dr. Agnes, this seems to me that some, uh, even though a drug may not meet uh, certain items on the checklist, it, it might still uh, be worthy of a physical trial to enroll yeah. patients in. And I think what we're saying is if you can't show single agent activity um, from your agent and single agent activity that's not assumed in the activity of anti-PD-1, as was the case with, um, for example, um, TVEC, mm -hmm. um, then um, I think you should do a randomized phase two trial and make sure that you're actually showing benefit that um, looks like it's potentially real before going all the way to phase three. And I think as an example, that's what happened with the Nevorella development. They did a phase two trial, and when it looked promising, they continued it to phase three. Mm. But if you look at the Epicatastat trial, or if you look at the BEMPEG trials, there were no, no single agent activity in those regimens, and there was no evidence of activity in anti-PD-1 resistant tumors. So, uh, Dr. Atkins, do you think with the, this very comprehensive list, uh, do you think it is readily, uh, I mean, should trial investigators, can they or should they just use this for every phase three IO combinations that comes their way? I mean, they just look at it item by item, uh, enroll patients and meet some of the criteria. 
were there maybe additional items that are perhaps not on the list? What do you think people should also pay attention to? We tried to be pretty comprehensive in this list. And if an investigator is trying to decide whether they want to do um, open a trial at their institution compared to, let's say, another trial, and whether they want to subject their patients to um, the added inconvenience and toxicity of the combination, they can look at the items on this checklist and see which one of those are potentially satisfied and decide whether they want to move forward. For example, with um, BEMPEG, I think um, what we had was potentially additive or synergistic biology in some preclinical models um, and um, some translational studies. And that was it um, from the checklist in order to move forward. And um, I think, you know, the result was, you know, a lot of energy was invested in those type of trials that probably was um, not well spent. Right. And there you have it. And there are different um, priorities that biotech and industry faces when deciding to move to phase three. But I hope that in some way, the checklist that we've created gives them a, um, a chance to consider whether or not it's the right time to move to phase three, or at least give them a little pause before they do that, so that we have less dry wells going yeah. forward. Yeah. So, Dr. Atkins, you sort of have a peace of mind when you use this list to... Um, evaluate the phase three trials at hand. But on the other hand, science is often about taking risks. Uh, so how do you think uh, investigators and biopharma companies should balance the uncertainties and potential rewards? I mean, like the list mentioned, uh, Roche's uh, TIGID uh, agent, Tyrocolumab, how its phase two programs control arm performed unexpectedly worse than historical experience. And right now we have their phase three program. Uh, they didn't hit the uh, progression-free survival endpoint, but this, they're still waiting for the overall survival final readout. So how do you uh, balance these uncertainties and uh, also based, just based on the list, and the potential final readout, for example, in Terragolumab's place, the potential to eventually hit the overall survival endpoint. Yeah. You know, uh, that's another example of a phase three trial that was disappointing, even though the um, phase two trial did have some benefits. So I think it was okay to move forward to phase three, but I don't like phase three trials with immunotherapy that don't use immunotherapy endpoints. And so medium PFS is not an immunotherapy endpoint. And you can see differences in the tail of the survival curve, even though there's, you're not necessarily impacting the median patient. I think particularly if you're doing an immunotherapy and comparing it to a chemotherapy or a targeted therapy, um, you um, should be looking at endpoints that 
optimize the role of the immunotherapy, um, which is landmark PFS or landmark overall survival rather than median PFS. Makes sense. To me, the list appears to be um, trying to dissuade investigators from taking part in certain phase three trials, mainly those that don't uh, meet some of the key criteria on the checklist. But we have so many IO trials these days, and uh, it's more than to me, it's more than just uh, dissuading patients off some of the trials, but also expanding the overall pool of patients who are willing to participate in clinical trials. Just wondering, is CITC uh, working on anything in that direction, like expanding uh, patients who are, who are getting onto clinical trials these days? Yeah, I think um, there has been an initiative which um, uh, CITC has participated in trying to decrease the eligibility criteria. Um, for getting on trials to make the patient populations in clinical trials more like the real world populations um, in trying to um, reduce the costs of clinical trials that have been sort of skyrocketed over the last couple of decades with, I, I think, companies and possibly CROs feeling that every I needs to be dotted and every T needs to be crossed if they're going to actually do a trial, which puts a lot of extra burden on research staff at institutions to uh, that may not be necessary. And um, um, I think that SITSI is looking at ways of simplifying the process so that the drugs and combinations that are really useful can be brought to um, phase three trials quickly, and those trials can be conducted and that they can um, go to the FDA for approval so that patients can have access. To mm. Yeah, I, for one, am looking forward to seeing more patients getting into clinical trials. Uh, yeah. So thank you, Dr. Atkins, for taking the time to do this interview. You're welcome. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hudson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line. The Top Line.